0: We are honored to welcome Chris Burden back to Stockholm. And last time he was here, it was in a solo exhibition in 1999 at Magazine 3. And Chris Burden first gained attention for his radical performances in the 1970s, and continues to be an important figure in contemporary art. Many of his works explore engineering and technological solutions for moving the human body through space. It is especially exciting that he's able to come while the Chris Burden exhibition with works from the collection of Magazine 3 is still on display. Curated by Tessa Brown, the exhibition includes earlier works as well as newly acquired collage relating to current project that was made specifically for the second season of this exhibition. This fall, the New Museum in New York will present a major exhibition of his work, and it is exciting to think that The Mexican Bridge will travel from Stockholm for this occasion, and we from Magasin 3 welcome warmly Chris Burden.
1: Thank you very much for coming. I was specifically asked to talk about the works that I've done that involve motion or traveling through space. I have a lot of images to show you, a lot of things to talk about, but I can't in any form or fashion go through anywhere near all the work I've done. So I'm going to kind of go through quickly and, and uh, talk about each one, but brief because there's a lot of stuff. So this is a, an image from a a performance that I did in 1971 in graduate school. It was a group show with the rest of my fellow students. And for my work, I put this black path that was tar paper from roofing paper through the gallery, in the front door, out the back door. And during the exhibition, I continually rode my bicycle through the gallery and out around the building and and through. So it was a continual performance. I had signs up that said, caution, do not stand on the pathway. Danger, danger, red, orange signs. And of course, uh, a famous art critic, Barbara Rose, was standing. She ignored the safety signs. I came whizzing around a corner and knocked her her down. She subsequently was on my graduation committee and uh, refused to graduate me, but uh, other faculty prevailed. This is a performance called Transfixed, This, uh, I invited maybe 10, 15 of my friends and fellow artists to view this. This is an alley in Venice, California, very close to the beach. And um, I rented this garage specifically to do this performance. So when the viewers came, this is what they saw. And this performance was a little bit like an apparition. It's called Transfixed, and it was done in 1974. And basically, I was crucified on a Volkswagen, and the Volkswagen was with the engine running, the door was open, the engine was in neutral, it was pushed out, and the motor was revved very, very fast, you know, the motor. So the engine sort of sounds like it was screaming. And then my hands were nailed to the roof of the car, not my feet, and then it was maybe a minute, 30 seconds, the car was pushed back in and the door was shut. If you were just walking down the alley, you you might see this and you might not. Death Valley Run, this is 1976. And uh, some of these works are out of, out of sequence because this is kind of a performance. And basically, I had a very lightweight uh, bicycle, and I put a very tiny motor on it. And th- this is the uh, I'm Crossing Death Valley. It's called Death Valley Run. And there's, you see some extra gasoline. This is another one called The Curse of Big Job. I saw this truck for sale, and I sort of fell in love with it because it seemed so ominous. I purchased it and I had all kinds of fantasies about what I would do with it. I was gonna put my art in it and take it to shopping centers and show it and uh, going into an antique business with my mother in New Hampshire. And I had all kinds of fantasies about it. So I had it for maybe a couple months. It was a real problem because it would get parking tickets so I was always having to move it you know, from one side of the street to the other. And then uh, finally, I realized you know I should sell it, and I put it up for sale, and I if nobody was buying it. It's called the Curse of Big Job. Finally, I found a man who bought it, and he I paid three thousand dollars for it. And he offered me fifteen hundred, and I I agreed to it, and he bought it and, and drove it away. About a week later, uh, a, a very well known collector in Los Angeles wanted to buy it and replace the Richard Serra on his lawn with my truck. <laughs> Unfortunately, the truck was gone, and it was somewhere on its way to Tennessee. So that didn't happen. This is in my studio, and it's a, I built this wooden wheel. And it was the last performance that I actually did. And I taught at uh, University of California in Los Angeles at UCLA for 26 years. In 1983, they asked me to do a performance on campus. So what I did was I built this wooden wheel. And there was a, a walkway that had a, a hill, uh, an inclined. And I was strapped into this wheel, like Michelangelo, in the drawing. And I had the students push me up the hill. So I had to trust that the students would not let me roll down. Here they are pushing me up. Then in 74, I came to Europe on doing some performances. I was offered two exhibitions, one in Amsterdam at a place called The Apple, and one in a gallery in Paris called Gallery Stadler. They asked me to do a performance in each place. But I came back to the States, and I decided that instead of doing a performance, basically I would build a handmade car uh, that was somewhere between a bicycle and an airplane. The performance was going to be that I would show up in Amsterdam and I would have this car that would be sort of like a pup tent, like a tent would pop out of a suitcase and I would snap it together. And then I would hop in it and drive to Paris. And uh, the first exhibition was called uh, uh, Art and Technology. And then when I arrived in Paris, it was Yankee Ingenuity. And so these are some of the preliminary sketches, which actually are on view now in Magazine 3, of how, how I would do this. This is a graph that shows weight versus horsepower and speed. And the echo rotor was actually, th- this project came from the fact that I'd gone to Europe. There was a gasoline crisis in 1974. And I came back to the States, and I realized how huge the cars were compared to European cars. And so I came up with this idea that I would start a car, car company, car manufacturer. And I contacted rich collectors that I knew. And, I mean, there was absolutely no response. It was like I was a madman. So uh, not that I was an engineer, but I wanted to start a car company. So it was out of frustration with that earlier idea of of starting my own car company that I built the B-Car, because the B-Car was something that I could actually build myself without a huge industry. These are preliminary sketches. This is me in my studio. And the way, I mean, it's a little bit like designing a coffin, because... You design it around your own physical body. So, you see in the corner, those are uh, dowels. Those are wooden dowels that I was using to uh, sort of uh, map it out. And then on the floor is the beginning of the frame. The tubing is uh, chrome molly tubing. It's the kind of stuff they use in racing bicycles. It's a very thin wall, very uh, high tensile strength steel. And it's actually built like a bicycle. If you look at the intersections, there's the extra sort of welded parts that are bigger that the tubes fit into. I used a very small motor, a fifty cc moped motor, because uh, I thought that in Europe I would be able to drive it because I knew that uh, mopeds don 't really have to be licensed, so I thought by using a fifty cc motor, I could get away with a law. but once I got it here, I was told that no you know that when I drove it across to the border between France and uh, amsterdam that uh, that they would confiscate the car, so the car was truck to Paris. It was a real learning experience, I have to say. But it was very, very satisfying because I felt like I was uh, a Robinson Crusoe of technology and I realized that what I was doing had tremendous political implications because if everyone can build their own car, there's no reason to have car factories. It's a little bit like making your own shoes or clothes. Here I am testing it out. That's the engine, of course, and the two gas tanks. This is a body mold from my body. This is sort of the showroom picture, brochure. This is the back of the motor. You know, the idea was that um, it's extremely lightweight. I mean, I can pick this car up. The idea was that you use a fabric skin so that you could, in theory, change the color of your car by putting a new set of clothes on it because the body is fabric. And here I am, out in the desert, testing it. I'm going about 50 miles an hour, which is, what, 80 kilometers, something like that, per hour. It it handles very well, actually. Uh, so it kind of gives you a, a scale. And here I am in Paris, driving it. We got permission from the mayor in Paris to to have a set route, so it's a very scary thing to drive around, because you can see that my eyes are about where the pedals are on a bicycle. And so in traffic, next to a bus, it's very frightening. So it's, it's sort of a, an ideal car. It's a visionary car. Uh, if there were no cars that were made yet, we could make cars like this. But actually, because there are cars now, you can't have a car like this. It's extremely dangerous. The next image here is, shows the sketches for the sailing destroyer. And I was asked to come to England and do a project. They offered me a World War II destroyer to do what I wanted with. So I said, oh, hey, great, we'll take it sailing in the North Sea. And these are preliminary sketches to, uh, as to how we would go about doing it. I think the idea is that it's a little bit of um It looks like it's benign and green because it's not using diesel as the motive power. It's using... A wind, like a traditional sailboat, and uh, the idea was to m- modify it so it could actually take the sailing in the north sea and But when I got to England, they told me that not a chip of paint could be touched on this ship, and that it was a heirloom of the British navy, and there was only one of these left, even though there were uh, it, it would have been possible was engineering possible, and it was interesting too, because the british told me I would have to put it in dry dock and put a full keel on it, which was going to cost millions of dollars. And I hired an American engineer, and he came up, and and we ended up displaying the model and all the blueprints on the actual ship. But he came up with a very simple solution was to put these uh, outriggers on, like a a Hawaiian trimaran. And the mast, if you look, it's an A-frame. So there's not a single mast, but it's There's two, and so the the stress would go out on the edges of the steel hull as opposed to the middle of the deck. And this was relatively inexpensive to do. It could have been done actually while the ship was in the water. The next is a drawing uh, of a model airplane. uh, Actually, I built six of these, and it was called the uh, Flying Wing. And this is a drawing I made for the collector. The collector owns the Santa Monica Airport, and I was asked to uh, make a work of art that she would like. So this was done in 94. Uh, uh, and I read a lot of technical journals in, in aviation. I try to keep up on it. And uh, you know this predates the drones. But I, I could tell that they were coming. So by hand, I built six of these. And they use a compressed air motor. So there's no heat signature, no noise to speak of. But the best thing is... I don't know, it's obvious here, but if you look way at the left-hand side, flying wings are inherently unstable, and they tend to go into spiral dives. This model has a pendulum in it. So when the plane tilts left or right, the pendulum is gravity-controlled because it's a pendulum, so it's self-correct. So if the plane tilts left, the pendulum will adjust the a- a- aileron, so it self-stabilizes, and I thought that was very, very clever. The next image is a sketch I made for a work called Another World. And the idea here, I, I really like the Eiffel Tower. I, I lived a long time in France as a child. I kept thinking, well, how could we improve on the Eiffel Tower? And the idea here is that you take two Titanics and you attach them to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and um, people board would board the <laughs> I mean, this is a fantasy. Of course, the River Seine does not flow through the Eiffel Tower. But um, people would board the the ships for an evening cruise. And then the ships would start spinning. (laughs) The reason it's called Another World is because the wine in your glass would be at right angles to the River Seine. So... You could be on board having a dinner cruise and and the wine, you know, you'd look down and you'd see the river flowing at right angles to you. So that's why it's in another world when you're on board. This is the um, beginning of the bridge series. Uh, We'll get to it in a minute, but there's a a bridge at Magazine 3 called the Mexican Bridge. And for years, I I have a book on early Mexican railroads and there was this just gorgeous bridge that was never, never built. It was designed in about 1890 and it was, built, it was supposed to be built out of cast iron, not steel. And I kept looking at this image and thinking, I'd love to build this, and I think uh, mechano and erector sets might be possible. So th- this bridge was called the, originally it was called the Stand-On Bridge. It was subsequently named the Quarter-Ton Bridge because uh, a friend of mine came over who's heavier than I am, and he hopped on when I was on it, and then his son hopped on, and I realized... Jesus, uh, 500 pounds of weight on this bridge. So we uh, uh, renamed it the quarter-ton bridge as proof of pudding here. Uh, you can see those are 50-pound bags of fertilizer, and there's 10 of them. So it weighs 5 pounds and supports 100. It s- supports 100 times its own weight. There's a sort of a studio shot. This is a, a drawing that we got from a, uh, the actual original drawing from... Mexico City. This is on display in Mexico City. And I just got this about a year ago. But the drawing that I looked at was this etching in a book. And I just thought, God, that is a beautiful bridge. Just the central curve. And, and I, I must have looked at this image for three or four years before I built it. And it was really hard to figure out what was going on when the curve starts at the top of the column. It took me a long time to figure that out. But here's a close-up of it. I really like this bridge. And it, it was the basis f- it got me started on doing all those bridge series. And it was a show that I did, as was mentioned earlier, at Magazine 3 in 1999. And I did the Mexican bridge first, and I wanted to have a counterpoint. And so I chose the Hellgate bridge, which is in New York City. I mean, this sounds a little bit silly, but I saw them as uh, as having opposite sexes. That this Mexican bridge was feminine and delicate and beautiful, and then you have this brutish Hellgate bridge. So I proceeded to build a uh, 30 feet, about 10 meter long version of the Hellgate bridge. But on the way, I tried to find parts that matched the actual bridge. And I, you can see here this part that is a, a beam and a little X thing that was a perfect match for the actual parts on the real Hellgate bridge. So I I sort of fell in love with this part. And it's from American Meccano, which is called Erector. They made this part from 1913 to 1923, about 10 years. And then they stopped making it. And so for this bridge, I actually started um, buying up all the world's supply of this part. And the price kept going up. The more I bought, the more more expensive they got. So um, here's the finished bridge. So at some point, uh, I, I went into uh, partnership with a man named Fred Hoffman, and we decided that it would be best to produce this part ourselves. So we copied the original erector part, and we had the dies made, and we started stamping them out of stainless steel because uh, the original parts were really prone to rust, and it was a real issue. So I did a series of bridges, and I'm not going to show them all to you, but the, the, the one that I think is uh, the most dramatic is this one. It's called the Curve Bridge, and it's entirely built out of these stainless steel erector parts. Then in 2000, 2001, I guess, I was offered a show in Newcastle, uh, England, and they had converted a flour mill, and it's called the Baltic Center for the Arts. They took me there, and I walked around, and it was still under remodeling, it was an old flour mill, as I said. And I looked out what was going to be the windows, and uh, there's the Tyne Bridge. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a wonderful opportunity. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that where the real bridge is right outside. So um, these are real mecano parts, but I had them made, they were made in India and in Argentina, and then they were shipped to California, and uh, we built this bridge. This is a very, very beautiful bridge, I think. And there's a detail of it. Recently, relatively recently, I started collecting and looking at images of uh, a German building toy called Anchor Blocks, and they are manufactured stone. And they were developed in Germany in the late 1800s. And the reason they were made was because they're dimensionally stable. And the Germans wanted to have a building block that young boys could use to build things with that was more precise than wooden blocks, because wooden blocks swell and shrink and change. And they still make these blocks. And I was online looking at images, and I saw this bridge that was made from these blocks. And I couldn't quite believe it. And I think you'll see what I mean. So I tried to um, build the, the bridge that I saw. And I actually talked to some of the people that sold these um, parts in America, these um, Anchor blocks. And I asked them, well, what what kits do I need? What sets do I need to build a bridge? And their answer was, if you need to ask, then you don't have enough. And so I said, okay, let me buy all your sets, and we'll go from there. <laughs> I think the next image will sh- explain it better. But it's very improbable. The the physics of this are correct, but it just is a little little dicey, as you see here. The load... And the reason I like this bridge so much is because it's so, uh, it's so illustrative of, of the loads. So the bridge goes down, it goes into that roller. If that little block, block at the edge breaks, it's over. You see the wooden block. There's no, there's no keystone in this system. I had an idea that I, could, uh, I would love to make this as a full-size bridge. So I, I hired an engineer and uh, he, he did some calculations, and we changed some of the parts. But basically, um, here it is out of, I cast all these blocks out of concrete. So, this is the quarter scale version. And I was going to make one that was 60 feet long, but the blocks get very, very heavy. And so, I thought, you know, to be on the safe side, we should start small and work our way up. So, this is a quarter scale, which is about, I think, seven feet or something. Between the arches, not overall, again, you see the structure. And for the show at the, uh, the new museum in the fall, I decided to make a triple arch version of this, and you see it under construction in my studio. It reads lighter than the single one because you don't need the sort of the heavy buttress at either end, so it reads lighter. It's hard to see it here, but it actually kind of looks like a menorah when you're looking at the I think this' next. So you can see it a little bit there on the right, I think. That's a shot of my studio. You can see there's some some of the erector sets. There's another Eiffel Tower. And let me just run through the blueprints real quickly for you. So this is the quarter scale version. There's the half scale. And there's the full scale. And every time you double the size, you quadruple the weight and volume. So the quarter scale weighs about a tonne. So a ton times four is four tons, four times times four. So this one would weigh 16 tons. But the problem is that these blocks get very big and, and unwieldy, and we haven't really dealt with that. We, you, know, y- you can't build this by hand. You have to have machinery, and uh, you have to have a way to pull the, put the blocks in place, whereas the smaller one, you can just lift them in place. Uh, here's a double scale. So 60 feet, 20 meters... Between the arches. And I have this fantasy that I would love to build this bridge out of glass blocks. Cast glass blocks. And I think you could, it could be really beautiful. It could be like a rainbow. You could have different colored blocks. And it could just be gorgeous. You know, It would be a little bit like uh, the Emerald City of Oz or something. You could just uh, sort of stagger people. The next image is, is a drawing that I made. And I think it's about to become true. And it's the idea that all cars are controlled uh, from satellite. everything's controlled by, uh, is digitized. And you, you just get in your car, you punch in the address, and sit back and enjoy the ride. And what that enables you to do is, well, a couple things. You can send your child to preschool in his or her own car and not have to sh- take them to school. It also means you can be extremely drunk and drive. And it can increase top speed. So I live in Los Angeles, and over the last 30 years, the average speed has dropped to just terrible. There's uh, there's only certain hours of the day that you can actually go out and drive. With digitally controlled cars, you can increase the speed because the cars can be... They all have a slot to go into. And so this next drawing is an image of what it would be like to get around town when you had cars going really fast. So there's a map of Los Angeles. I mean, the drawing's kind of self-explanatory, but this would be a dream come true. So places that take you an hour to two hours to get to now, you could get to in 10 minutes. I went from this to, and I don't know why I I did this, but um, I built a sculpture called Metropolis, and there's an image of it. And it uses the little Hot Wheel cars you can buy, the little die-cast cars. And we modified them so that uh, they have a magnet underneath and rubber bumpers. And we actually bought Hot Wheel cars to do this. And this, this sculpture has two lanes and it has a ramp. The cars run free. They run through the system. And it's owned by a museum in western Japan. It went from my studio to Japan. I never, I never saw it when it went to Japan here it is. Here's a car coming down. It uses real hot wheel track, too. Here's the car going up. And the, the belt, it's like a conveyor belt. So the magnet on the bottom of the car interacts with the magnet on the, on the conveyor belt and is brought to the top and released like a roller coaster. Here's the original sketch for it. After I built this, because we'd done so much uh, development, I decided to build one that was ten times bigger. So this This one uses 80 cars and has two lanes. And the next one has 18 lanes and has 1,100 cars. So it's actually a decimal point bigger. It's a quantum. So these were the original uh, layout drawings. And the string represents the lanes. And the little black dots are uh, a change in elevation. And so we we didn't really use a computer. We used string and pentel. This is a blueprint of the core. We built a, a base using uh, Unistrut, which is a steel tubing with holes in it, a little bit like Giant Erector, Meccano. So that's how it comes apart. Those are the units that it breaks down into. These are the three conveyor belts, sort of at their beginning. And you can see the, the direct thing. And this, this is the finished work. I think it's about Los Angeles. I think it's a, a sort of a poetic vision of or of interpretation of Los Angeles. It's a strange work, because the cars are actually going that sort of incredible speed, scale-wise. They're going 240 miles an hour. But they are sort of in the past, I, I've talked to people about it. It's a little bit like if you were to make a model of New York City in 1909, and uh, it was totally, um, you would have horse buggies. Horses and buggies would be right before automobiles came in. So this is a little bit like that, because although it points to the future of cars going very fast, they all run free, and they can crash. They can fly off the track and uh, have all kinds of problems. And the day when you can step on an accelerator and pass somebody on a blind curve, those days are going to come to a quick end, which is great, because, I mean, driving a car will be like sitting in a train, I think it's time for the movie, and let's see if I can do this. All right, so this is a little short film. Uh, I didn't make this film, but I think it sort of captures a spirit. It's a little distorted, so because the screen is a little wider than it should be, but... Of hearing that the cars are going 230 miles an hour, that makes me very hopeful <laughs> for the future. <laughs> that's that's the, that's about the speed they should be running, not 23.4 miles an hour, which is what my BMW says I average driving around LA. It's about to be over. The idea that a car runs free. that that those days are about to close. So it's a little bit like making a model of New York City at the turn of the last century, and you're modeling horse buggies everywhere, and then the automobile's about to arrive. So something else is about to arrive. What's really stressful is that uh, stop and go, low speed, high speed, you know, where it speeds up and slows down. That is highly stressful. I mean, it's different than cruising along on an open road, you know what I'm saying, at a constant speed. Noise was uh, is real uh, amazing. I think in terms of how it produces a level of tension too. It wasn't about trying to make this uh, scale model something. It was more to evoke the energy of a city.
0: What's yet to be finished? We're, We're close.
1: One thing I'd like to say is, you know, the first one that you saw, the one, one that Japan, we actually used real Hot Wheel cars, and we modified them, and and that was really difficult because, in America, a Hot Wheel car costs a $1 dollar to a dollar fifty or something, but by the time you have somebody work on each car, uh, they they become sixty seventy dollar cars because the amount of labor involved and and uh, they were custom made. The little rubber bumpers are ground by hand. So when we made Metropolis 2, rather than going to every Toys R Us in, in greater Los Angeles and trying to buy all the Mustangs of some kind that work, we decided to have them manufactured in China. And uh, had 34000 produced, and the cost dropped dramatically to the 3 to $4 range. So uh, And they're all consistent, and uh, we were able to improve on the Hot Wheel design, uh, and, and make it, uh, make them much more robust and, and reliable. So it's weird to, to be making, have 34,000 cars. I have a container full of little model cars. But it's good because they do wear out, and this way I have a supply to replace the ones that wear out. This next image is of a Zeppelin under construction. I was struck, by how similar these parts look to my favorite erector set part. A striking similarity. In fact, this looks like it could be in my studio, but it's not. It's, <laughs> you know, it's somewhere around World War I in, in Germany. Here's the part for your information. So I started uh, making sort of mock-ups of a, of a typical cross-section of a Zeppelin. And this is my little dog sitting in the middle of it. You know, I started doing some research, and and I came across this early aviator, a Brazilian aviator named Santo Dumont. And in 1901, he won a prize for going on a set course. This is not a dirigible. It's a balloon. A balloon doesn't have an inner structure, so it's different. It doesn't have a hard structure. It's just a balloon with cables, and he's on that, and he's uh, flying around the Eiffel Tower, and so this is a, monument, a celebration. Here's an illustration from a book I have, and you can see that the frame. I thought hmm, maybe I could build this because I would love to build a zeppelin, not a balloon, but that could actually carry me, and I could fly around L.A. I mean, w- one of my favorite images, uh, which I didn't don't have tonight, is of Santo Dumont, and he he used to drive his balloon around Paris and there's an image of him going to a restaurant and he ties up his balloon to the balcony of the second story goes in and has dinner goes back out hops on his balloon and puts home I mean I just thought 1901 Mm -hmm." (laughs) so here I'm going to read you a little quote and he wrote a book actually about his experiences I'll just read you this little quote here Man has never known anything like free vertical existence. Held down to the plane of the earth, his movement, quote, down, has scarcely been more than to return it to it after a short excursion up, quote, unquote. Our minds remaining always on the plane surface even while our bodies may be mounting, and this is so much the case that the spherical balloonist as he rises has no sense of movement, but gains the impression that the earth is descending below him. And then this is italicized. With respect to the combination of vertical and horizontal movements, man is absolutely without experience of them. Therefore, as all our sensations of movement are practically in two dimensions, this is the extraordinary novelty of serial navigation that it affords us experience, not in the fourth dimension, it is true, but in what is practically an extra dimension, the third. So that the miracle is similar. Indeed, I cannot describe the delight, the wonder, and the intoxication of this free diagonal movement onward and upward or onward and downward combined at will with abrupt changes of direction horizontally when the airship answers to the touch of the rudder. The birds have this sensation when they spread their great wings and go tobogganing in curves and spirals through the sky. So, you know, all of a sudden, this guy is experiencing the ability to navigate through three dimensions. And, you know, it was a big moment. Anyway, I um, decided I, sh- I needed to make a sculpture that was an ode to this historic event of him winning this prize, the Deutsche Prize, going around the Eiffel Tower. And so I thought, well, I should start with the engine. I found this little, these crude castings of a 1-6 uh, model of a gasoline engine that was designed in 1903. And I thought, well, that's, that's about the right time period. So I sent away, and we got, this is what we got. So I hired a machinist, and I've been working on this for mm, four or five years, I think. And he hand-built this motor, basically. And it was quite a nice experience, because um, when you make something from scratch, you can go back and fix it. So that's the crankcase, and that's... You know the top part of the engine. Here's a picture of the engine. Here's uh, the machinist concept of what how it could be connected to the propeller. This is the initial setup. That's the gearbox. The green tank is a cooling cooling system, and the motor. You can see it right there, and it's chain driven to the to the gearbox. I decided that you know we needed to save weight, so. We decided that we would stamp the uh, Rector sets out of aluminum. And I found out about this aircraft aluminum that was called, it's an alloy called 7075. And uh, my metal stamper said, Yeah, it's really the ideal material for you, but it's not available because it's all tied up in government contracts for for the aircraft industry and the Air Force. And I said, Oh, that's too bad, you know, no, no, no. And then a couple years later, he said, Well, you know, the recession, they've cut back, and, and now you can buy this metal. Oh, great, you know, so we uh, start stamping them out of aluminum, and you can see the difference there. It's heat-treated and everything, and when we got him back from the heat-treater, he says, yes, these parts are certified for aircraft use. Here you can see the beginnings of the frame, Uh, so that's the basket, that's the long gondola that's going to hang under the balloon. Here's John Biggs with the propeller, and you can see the beginnings of the gondola there this It's a little hard to understand this, but the gondola is the structure in the middle, and it's just hanging from this frame as a way to support it right now. Maybe that shows it better. Here's a schematic. This is sort of what it will look like when it's finished. It will... Uh, well, you'll see it. There's a little short video I have, but the idea is that um, I don't really want to model the Eiffel Tower. I've done that, and, and so the Eiffel Tower... Structural will be more like an Anthony Caro or something. It will be just slabs of steel. And, and the balloon will go in circles around the Eiffel Tower, which is sort of a plan view here. It's a problematic work because I don't think I can show it outside, which means I have to have a huge airplane hangar to show it. In general, institutions don't like gas-powered engines running inside. So, finding where to show this is going to be an exhibit, it's going to be problematic, I realize. And now we're going to switch to a little video. There we go. This guy's a real character, but. So, these are tests to to test. Test the gearbox and the propeller and so the engine's running but the propeller's not engaged. This is a model. Can you make it go up or down? You can't, can you? Yeah, yeah. How do you do that? Oh with a rudder. I'm trying to get it neutrally oh, I see the little thing yeah. in the back, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kinda of going down
0: now,
1: but there we go. Sorry. That's the camera right. But the thing is Wow, that little flap really works, huh? Yeah. How amazing. But the interesting thing is, once it reaches the tip point, once the the line is extended, okay. it always stays at sort of that level. Uh-huh. When it's neutral.
0: Yeah, so it's always kind of right.
1: that way. Man. Right. That's a Lego Santo Domo. So now, now he's testing out a, a release mechanism for the uh, cords to pull it down. So it's on a, on a gear and it's a timer. So that you'll see, I think, uh, a little door opens up and the cord comes down. Maybe it's the next one. As far as part, there might be a leak So when the motor c- comes to the end of its run, then the and then you can pull it down to refuel it. And, and this is a weight that moves back and forth to uh, have it go up or down. What is that? A cast iron to iron? What? What? Iron? Old oh, iron? Yeah. That is sitting around forever, and I'm like, oh, I need a weight. Um, And the last work that I'm going to show you, it's sort of a little bit out of sequence here, but this is a project I've been working on for, I don't know, three years maybe. And uh, I've built a series of skyscrapers, which I didn't show you, out of these erector sets. But we came up with this one. This was put up yesterday in Los Angeles, so I thought it was kind of nice to have it be so timely. And it's a little bit hard to see, but it's made out of these stainless steel rectal parts, and you can actually climb to the top. So there, there's so, so many bracing that it's really, really strong. In fact, the engineer said, no, you don't have to do any engineering on this. It's obvious that it's way overbuilt. That's the first step to the bottom left, and you can basically walk to the top, and this is the last image, and there is somebody at the very, very top. And that that's my studio. And you can see some of the other skyscrapers. At some point I want to build a city called Xanadu that would incorporate all these skyscrapers and different structures I built and, and uh, some of the lamps sculpt- the lamps would have a road going through. It's like a it would be a city on a hill, kind of like the Emerald city in Oz, and you could walk through it, but people wouldn't live in it. You could walk up the hill, and you could... I, I really like these uh, these kind of buildings, because they're sort of models of buildings, but they're as big as a real building. So it, it sort of is in that weird, strange gray zone where it's a model, but it's as big as a real thing. It's, this is, this is uh, 40 feet high. And uh, those parts are really they're, like, totally flimsy. I mean, but if you put enough of them together, you get something that's strong. I think that's it. So, questions? Anybody? Yes. How does your typical workday? My typical workday? Well, let's see. My secretary comes in at 8 o'clock. There's about four to five people that come at 8. I talk on the phone between 7.30 and 9.30 to 10, usually with my f- friend Paul Schimmel former curator at MOCA. We talk about the art world and various politics therein. And about 10 o'clock, I go over to the studio. Hopefully, my secretary's there. She's usually late. She's very hard work, I don't. And I work in the studio mostly writing letters until lunch. I go home for lunch at 1. My wife calls me, says, it's time for lunch. We eat lunch from 1 to 1.30. Then I go back to the studio and usually work till around 5. So that's kind of my typical work day. We don't work Mondays. Mondays is our holiday. Nobody comes on the property on Mondays. Nobody. Uh, that's a great day because everybody else is at work. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great feeling. Monday's great. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what my day consists of. And I read, I read, too. I read tons of stuff. I subscribe to 50 magazines, and uh, I try to not read every article, but I flip through, you know, all the pages and, and read articles that are of interest. Yes? Do you have any technical training? No, no. And, and well, n- not in that sense, you know. You know. I, I did, when I first went to college, I wanted to be an architect. And uh, after the the first summer in college, I worked at an architectural firm uh, back in Boston. I was just, you know, the lowest of the low. I was just a flunky. And I noticed that there were young men mostly that had just gone to Harvard Graduate School in architecture. And they were in the basement. I was in the sub sub basement organizing magazines. And mostly what they were doing was drawing toilets and, and on blueprints. And the uh, the associates, the seven associates, were at the very top of the building. Their offices were all on the seventh floor. It was an old house on a hill. So it was kind of. And I thought, mm, I, I, you know, I don't think this is true now, but I did then. I thought, I can't wait till I'm 55 to make a decision that's important. In my college, for a pre-architecture, before graduate school, you studied art and physics and math. I quickly like going to the sculpture studio. And I noticed I was the only student that ever came in after class that did work. And I realized all the materials that they had bought for all the other students were actually mine. And that was really inspirational. I mean, that's 40 sheets of plywood are all yours? I don't have technical training, but I was telling David the other night, when I was building, I didn't show this, but there's a sculpture I made with a big cast iron flywheel on a motorcycle. And when I was trying to design the, the supports for, to put the big metal wheel in, I went to a turbine engineer, and I said, well, how big should the timbers be for this trestle? And he said, well, and he's a turbine engineer. He says, well, if it looks right, it probably is right. And I thought, hmm. And you have to realize that 200 years ago, there, there weren't really engineers. There were builders. You kind of get an intuitive feel. Like on the skyscrapers it was a real big battle I had with the engineers because I made a really tall one that was shown in Manhattan uh, that was about oh, 24 meters high and it used a million parts and uh, he had to engineer it because it was out in public you know, so it wouldn't fall over in the storm, sandy or something and he had to put a stamp on it so he says, "Well, you have to go back and you have to make it strong here and there and, and I said, why? he says, well, because of the wind and I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, the wind load pushes it this way, that way, you know." Okay. And he says, "But I, you know, I've engineered it as a solid." I said, "But it's not a solid." He says, "Yes, I know, but you know, you can't really calculate the wind going through it, and so to be safe, you have to pretend it's a box." And I said, "But no! If we take this out on a truck and we drive it at 80 miles an hour and put a, a scale on it." and you do the open structure, and you measure the pull, and then, you, and then you do it again, and you put plywood all over it, and you measure the pull, you're going to get two different numbers. He says, yes, I know, but you know, <laughs> it's my stamp. I can't take the risk. <laughs> so the way you engineer things is that you test them. And if they fail, they're not strong enough. And if they don't fail, then maybe they're too strong. My, my father always used to tell me the perfect sports car in a race collapses at the end of the finish line. That means no part is an ounce too heavy. I, I'm an amateur engineer and an amateur architect. You know what I'm saying? I'm not... But, I, but you do develop a sense for it. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, can you say something about the process of Yeah, sure. Um... Uh, well, I was talking to David about this earlier, and I think a lot of the works that I make are performative still. So they're sculptures, but they're performing for me or in my place. So you see the b-car, You see, you see this sculpture here that the last... I don't want the public to climb this. It's not, it's not a participatory work. It's super dangerous, number one. But I think you can look at it and you can imagine uh, climbing it which is uh, the only person I would let climb would be the museum director (laughs) for fundraising. You know what I mean? Meet me at the top. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I think I did a lot of performances. Uh, The B car uh, was a real change, but it was performative. It was an object that did something. I think I did so many that I, I wanted to change direction. Also, in my earlier performances, I got tremendous amount of press. Not art press, but, you know, lay press. Like. And they became more and more sensational as time went on. And the, uh, the sculpture I showed you, the performance, the transfix on the Volkswagen, I almost didn't do that because I knew how it would be written about. And uh, there was a real confusion as to what I was doing. I, the lay press thought, you know, I was... Uh, A rock and roll, that I was evil Knievel, that I was Alice Cooper, that, you know, and I realized there was a real misunderstanding as to what I was doing. And if I kept doing it, I would sort of fulfill their expectations. So that's one of the reasons I stopped. And I like making things. The reason I, I went into performance after graduate school was it was very efficient, and I wanted to keep making art. And when you have no money... You don't buy tools, you don't have a big shop, you don't have employees, and so by doing performances, all I needed was a camera and my grandfather's typewriter and a file cabinet. So it was a very efficient way to make art, and it enabled me, uh, because there's always excuses not to make art. I don't have enough money, I don't have the right tools. If you take all those away, for me as a young artist, it was really important to keep making art and doing performances was a way to do it when i made the b car i remember uh there were metal shavings in my bed you know i had a very small studio It was a hot dog stand on the venice boardwalk and so and it was really fun making the car there because we could we make it inside and then we would take it out at night and we test it on this uh boardwalk that ran up and down the the beach and of course invariably the neighbors would call the police and uh, so before the police could get there, we could turn it sideways and go through this little door, you know, whoop, gone, you know, so the, co- the cops would show up and where, no, it's, there's, no there's no problem here. So um, some of the reasons I changed, I mean, does that make sense or, yeah, yes. No, no are you thinking of any future, green projects? Oh, new projects? Yes. Well, yeah, I have all kinds of proposals I mean, and ideas. Uh, uh, one of the things I'd really like to do, and I haven't yet to convince anybody to do it, and I think it's, I think it's actually doable, and that would be to uh, build a uh, balloon out of mylar and to compress it and, and put it into orbit. And then when it got up into space, it would inflate, and you could make something huge, so huge that when you, it would reflect the sun like the moon. Uh, and so when you looked into outer space, even a really you know, primitive person in an aborigine would see this huge thing going through the sky. You know, you know how we all can see satellites sometimes going very high. This is sort of an exaggerated version of that. And if you even think further, if you could make it into a parabolic balloon that had um, the ability to uh, position itself... Uh, you could light up cities at night. And I think that's possible. I mean, I think it's right there. I think the cost of putting things in orbit is going down. There's a man named Bigelow who has a hotel chain, and he's starting a whole series of inflatable... Uh, he wants to do space tourism, where you go up and you spend a week in a basically a balloon that's in orbit. So I, I think that it's possible. I mean, that's an example. I have other ideas, too, but that's one I think would be very dramatic and... Uh, Successful in a certain sense, I think art does change people's lives. I don't think you have to be a, a manufacturer to change people's lives. I mean, Andy Warhol changed how we look at Campbell's soup cans. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I don't. I, I don't think I want to be an entrepreneur. I really don't. I, I, you know, I think I want a sort of steady, steady course, steady, steady state kind of. Uh, I think maybe in my youth I would have, but. I don't think so now. You know, I'm, I kind of want to keep going in the direction I'm going. I want to see the balloon made and uh, that kind of thing. I, I, um, you know, I, I thought making the B-car was, was uh, subversive in a subtle sense. In the, you know, and uh, it, w- it r- was really satisfying. And I also made a um, television system that is a uh, model on uh, the early mechanical televisions. There was a man in England named John Baird, I think, B-A-I-R-D. And he, I remember reading about him, and you know he invented the television I don't know, 1919, and he sent, uh, using uh, revolving pie pans, he sent a a moving image from his basement to his living room. And I remember reading this, and I thought, hmm, well, that sounds like something I'd like to build. And so I did, I mean, uh, I did the investigation and and it turned out that the uh, BBC uh, would send out a a signal and you could build uh, your own, basically it involves a a disc with holes drilled in a spiral pattern, so each hole is a scan line and it it spins around, light comes, hits the photo images, signal sent, and if you have a disc at the other end that's totally synchronous and you have a light flashing, that's hooked up to the signal, you can receive an image. And so I made this thing, and, and it works. I mean, it's, it's uh, but it's mechanical as opposed to electronic. And he tried to uh, institute this in America, but because of the uh, broadcast regulations, you know, uh, he was a foreigner, so he wasn't allowed. So the cathode ray tube won out. I mean, you know, so.
0: OK, yeah. thank right. you very much. You're
1: welcome.